Thanks for joining us for another podcast sermon from Redlands First United Methodist Church. Making sense of the holy can be a daunting task. By definition, an encounter with the holy challenges our perceptions and can shake our sense of self to the very core. With this, it is little wonder that these experiences tend to come in high on our terror meter. When we speak of God's presence in our lives, it is natural for us to use phrases like, when God shows up. Theologically speaking, statements like this fundamentally miss the point. God is with us, period. The sense that God comes and goes has more to do with our perceptions of seeing and experiencing God than with where God is actually present. The reality that God is with us is the bedrock of our faith. When everything and anything else disappears, God is still present. And yet because of the limitation of our humanity, it is all too easy to become separated from or untethered from God's presence and to feel like we are alone. Thankfully, God is always present. Our sense of isolation can be and often is pierced by God's presence. In these glorious moments when our awareness is transformed, we can see new possibilities of life and faith. In these moments, our perception of God, ourselves, and one another can be changed. This week, Reverend Dr. George Crisp, a retired member of our congregation, brings us a sermon that fleshes out this powerful hope. Our scripture lesson today is taken from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, we will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Let the church hear what the saying. Thanks be to God. I really am grateful to JT for his uh, invitations to come and preach at my own church. And so it's always a lot of fun for me to do that. And I appreciate your, uh, your uh, tolerance or acceptance or even welcome. It's wonderful. I, I think they want us to pray. So may the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. One of my favorite forms of poetry is haiku. Haiku is one of those self-plural words, and according to the American Heritage Dictionary, the word can be translated to be amusement sentence. I thought that was interesting. The haiku is a lyrical Japanese style of unrhymed poetry. It's written in one vertical line in Japanese, but in English, a haiku is written in a 575 sil- pattern of syllables per line. How many of you have dabbled with haiku? A few of you. A few of you. Maybe you've taught it in school or something like that. Haiku can be quite simple, or they can be rather sophisticated, and they can be delightfully playful or deeply profound. There are rules for writing traditional haiku, including a rule that says each haiku must contain at least one seasonal theme word, such as winter, icy, cold, something like that. A classic haiku written in the 18th century by Yosabusan, a master of the Edo period, is this. The first cold shower, even the monkey seems to want a little straw coat. Isn't that fun? I invite you to consider the haiku this morning because I want to share two of them with you that pertain to our scripture lesson one from Jesus' perspective, and one from the point of view of the disciples. First, from Jesus' perspective. To be the beloved, to hear words, to see the path, to be changed by God. And from the disciples' point of view, from up here, big world. Below, please, size, redemption, it's a long way down. Our gospel lesson this morning tells the story of the transfiguration. It's the lesson that brings the season of epiphany to a close. During this epiphany season, Jesus' style of of preaching about the kingdom of God was revealed little by little by little, first to the Magi, although Jesus didn't preach, his very presence did, all the way up until the last few lessons that we've been hearing from the Sermon on the Mount. Today's story is so central to the gospel that all three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include it in their narrative. Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles in the Galilee region. He has fed the 5,000, walked on the water, healed the sick. When a question of his identity is raised, Peter confesses his faith. His faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. No mistake, it's out there. Now Jesus takes his inner circle up a high mountain. Can you imagine Jesus having BFFs? 
or besties, a tribe, a squad. Those are all words I've heard for that. He takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who seem to be his closest friends, and they go hiking up the mountain. Jesus allows only this trio to witness the healing of a synagogue leader's daughter. They're the only ones specifically invited to come with Jesus deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer. And in front of these three disciples on this mountain, Jesus is physically transfigured. He appears before their eyes in heavenly glory. His clothes become dazzling white. Shine, Jesus, shine. We're going to sing that a little bit later. When I think of the transfiguration, I remember the grandeur of the mountains I have seen in the distance or the mountain trails I've hiked in my younger years. We all look out there and we see San Gregorio with a lovely dusting of snow on it. I've been to the top of that mountain. I have paperwork to prove it. I got a little squirrel card. I was 14 at the time, a while ago. Earlier civilizations believed that mountains are close to the heavens, and so they have symbolized places of revelation, places where one might encounter the holy. The mountain Jesus and his disciples climbed may not have been tall, but it was shrouded in clouds that represent the holy presence. If this experience had happened to us, how would we explain it? We live in the landscape of the ordinary, but I would guess that there have been moments, those moments when our lives have been changed, altered, transfigured, in some way. Maybe you can remember when you were transported to an extraordinary space and time when you have found fresh air and a new vista pointing you to new visions and new possibilities. We use that kind of language when we are trying to convince someone to go along with us and experience something they've never had experienced before. You may have experienced in that moment wonder and shock and fear, which is not unlike the disciples' reaction to Jesus' transfiguration. We tend to pick on Peter in this story, for it is his desire to pitch a tent. Other translations say a booth or a dwelling. And he wants to stay on that mountaintop. I've known kids, teenagers who've gone to camp, and it's such a mountaintop experience that they can't, they can't explain it to others. Sometimes it literally takes place high up in the mountains at a camp. Some of you have had that experience as well. And you want to build a booth and stay there. You want to set up shop. You don't want to go home. But it's not Peter's call. It's God's voice that interrupts him, telling the disciples to listen to Jesus. And they were frightened. I wonder, were they dizzy 
with mystery? Were they afraid of what Jesus might require of them next? I've come to realize that the transfiguration is not just a vision. It clearly was a vision, but not a vision alone. But the language that God uses is very similar to what happens at Jesus' baptism, another point of revelation. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. That's the command here. This is not just a visual thing. This is something we are supposed to listen to. And the word listen has the inference of heed, obey, not just pay attention to. When a transformational event happens to us, we are mesmerized. We want to capture that moment, that transfigured moment. But the search for the holy is not reserved for the mountaintop. The search for the holy continues as we come down the hill, and it will not go away. Even in our ordinary moments, even in those quotidian day-to-day -day things, we can be touched by the holy. Imagine that, doing the laundry and being touched by the holy. Feeding the dog and being touched by the holy. We cannot discount the power of transfiguration. Like many churches, we've seen a significant shift during the pandemic. That's affected everything in our lives, and we are just beginning to discover in how many ways. Just look around. Who are we seeing? And who don't we see? Some have rejoined us. Some are with us online. Thank you for being there. There are others we hope will be coming back, and we reach out to them and offer the invitation. And there are some who have just discovered who we are. And if you're one of those people, welcome. We're glad to have you here. What would happen if the unspeakable were to happen and our beloved buildings were gone? This congregation has experienced that trauma in its history. What would endure? The answer, for me, is that relationships are what endure. Jesus' best friends climbed that mountain, and they were transformed. Their encounter with the holy gave them renewed hope, a new perspective, some new tasks. The Bible doesn't list what they are, but we know what happens after. And Jesus' friends came through. The, the BFFs he could count on came through. Peter became the foundation of the church. James is the first disciple to die a martyr. John is entrusted with the care of Jesus' mother. Peter, James, and John had work to do. Now, we don't always get it right. 
we don't always get along. Sometimes we argue mostly about the wrong things. Sometimes we agree on the right things. But in the end, we know that it is the relationships that we have that make us stronger, our hearts fuller, and our faith deeper. Let me take a little side trip for a moment. This church has a 135-year history in this community. We think of ourselves as fully formed. We think of ourselves as being strong enough to have something special, and we want other people to join and align themselves with us. We say we want new, young, diverse people in the church, but do we? Maybe if they fit into our prefabricated dwelling, if they fit into our box, our idea, if we could put them into our pocket somehow and carry them around. But what if those newer folks want to transform our comfortable structures? our comfortable order of worship, our comfortable this or that, whatever you think that is, shaking up the United Women in Faith or the Men's Bible Study or you name it, the choir? Oh, did I mess on holy ground? What if they want to transform those things that have been long set by us older folks? And I'm now in that category. What if the Holy Spirit brings us people who question and challenge and dream and wonder and dazzle and transfigure our thresholds? You think we could stand it? Give it some thought. Now back to the text. Their traditional reading of the transfiguration says that the disciples are treated to a preview of Jesus' resurrection glory. Some scholars say it's a resurrection story that's been misplaced. Looking over the disciples' shoulders, we can glimpse the fulfillment of God's story, the fullness of God's power of life over death. How else would these three ordinary country fishermen recognize that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus? Were they wearing name tags? Hi, I'm Moses. Nice to meet you. Was Moses carrying the Ten Commandments? Was he that identifiable? Did Elijah arrive in a chariot of fire? I've used the word glory. We talk about resurrection glory. We talk about transfigured glory. Glory is one of those wonderful words that in English can have several meanings. We think of glory as something that elicits praise, honor, and admiration. It's a quality or an aspect of great beauty and splendor. Oh, you look glorious today. It is a quality or aspect of beauty and splendor. But glory is often 
a description of magnificence and grandeur, a state of exaltation or gratification. But it can be as simple as a ring of light, a halo, a corona, a dawning awareness of something. When we want to reveal our glory, we start listing our accomplishments. How many letters are there behind my name? How many things have I done that elicit awards? But there's always a corner of our lives that isn't so glorious. And sometimes it's more than a corner. We spend our lives running away from things like rejection and betrayal and death. But that's often where God's glory is revealed. God's glory is revealed in the manger of Bethlehem. How simple. Or by the banks of the Jordan River. Or the high mountaintop of the Transfiguration on a little hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. God's glory is revealed by God's very presence with us. Not just when we're at our best, but when we're at our worst. When we've lost our way. When we are empty. When we're suffering. When we've caused suffering. When you can't feel God anymore and feel you've lost God, God's glory is revealed by God's very presence with us. Our culture equates glory with fame and with winners of all kinds. But in the scriptures, Glory means weight or heaviness. God's glory is God's gravitas. To be in God's presence is to experience the vastness, the immensity of God. God's glory also has to do with transcendent luminosity. Hence, shine, Jesus, shine. Up there on the mountain, a place close to heaven, a place of revelation, a symbolic place of hope and instruction, Jesus' disciples experience the blinding light and the mysterious voice in the cloud saying, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The transfiguration changed Jesus' appearance. But I think this experience transformed more than just Jesus. Maybe our focus should be on the altered perception of the disciples. The disciples not only see with new eyes, they hear with new ears. This experience allowed them to catch a glimpse of the entire Christ event. And by that I mean the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and Jesus' ascension. That whole Christ event. Until this moment, the message of their teacher was only dimly comprehended. 
only haltingly understood or received. On that mountain, a heavenly voice got their attention, and they hear what's been unavailable to them before. They hear the divine affirmation of Jesus. I guess the haiku writer is right from Jesus' perspective. To be the beloved, to hear words, to see the path, to be changed by God. And from the disciples' point of view, from up here, big world. Below, please, size, redemption, it's a long way down. If we reflect the glory of God in what we do as a church community, as a church family, then we will be able to see the glory of what God is doing in our time, through our hands, and in this place. And I've said these things to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from Redlands First United Methodist Church. I hope that it has been a source of inspiration and encouragement for your spiritual journey. If you're interested in more information about the church, we would invite you to come to our website at redlandsfirstchurch.org. We hope you will join us in person, online, or via this podcast each week as together we open our lives to the movement of the Holy Spirit that we might grow in faith and be strengthened in the ways that we reflect Christ's presence in the world. Mm -hmm.